Hi there, Steve Shepard here. I went out for a walk this morning down our street to the bottom of the hill and then across to the field that we and our neighbors own as shared common land. It's a big piece of land. As the crow flies, and many do, it takes about seven minutes to walk from one side to the other. But we can't walk as the crow flies because of flooded areas and tall grasses in the summer and streams that crisscross the meadow. So there are wide, meandering paths that snake all over the property, a palimpsest of access. It was sunny this morning and bitterly cold with a breeze coming in from Lake Champlain that made my nose run and my eyes water. It felt really good. No one else was around. We're under siege at the moment, and other humans just weren't in evidence. I woke up this morning wanting to go for a walk. Strike that. I needed to get out to breathe fresh air, to inject a modicum of normalcy into my housebound veins. So out I went. I daydreamed my way through the field, following the barely visible track of the path in the now close-cropped field. Way over there in the corner, a farmer had stacked a dozen plastic-wrapped hay bales this year's Vermont marshmallow harvest. He'll haul them away soon. He cuts the field for us for free. In exchange, he keeps the hay for his livestock. As I walked, my mind tripped off to a day in 1985 that, for various reasons, I've never forgotten. I was working for the telephone company in California as a data center manager, responsible for the health and welfare of the company's data network and the data centers that housed the giant computers the company depended on to perform the various information-related tasks that telephone companies do. I was amazed then, and I still am today, at just how much brute force it takes to keep those things running. These aren't the elegant, sophisticated racks of blade servers that we see today in pictures of computer centers. These were rooms full of mysterious, loud metal boxes, 10 feet by 8 feet by 4 feet, painted Amdahl red or IBM blue. They sat atop floors made of 3 foot by 3 foot tiles that could be lifted with a giant suction cup to gain access to the power and data cables and the water pipes that fed these machines. They were water-cooled. The boxes had radiators fed by ice-cold water from gigantic chillers in the basement, and the fans that blew across the radiators to keep the machines from melting down made it nearly impossible to carry on a conversation in what we called the clean room. Clean because no humans worked there. They were all upstairs in the soundproof, glass-enclosed control room that sat on a raised pedestal like a stubby airport control tower. In one distant corner of the machine room, as we called it, were the hard drives, and in another quadrant of the room was the tape pool. The hard drives, and there were several hundred of them, were each the size of a washing machine. Inside each one of them was the storage medium, a stack of nine 13-inch diameter platters accessible on both sides that spun at 20,000 RPMs. The combined storage capacity of each nine-platter array was 80 megabytes. Data was written onto and read off of each surface, top and bottom, by what was known as read-write heads that moved in and out between the platters and floated on a vanishingly thin cushion of air above the magnetic surface. It was close enough to magnetically read or write to the disk, but far enough away to not actually touch the spinning disk, which would be disastrous. The apocryphal fact that we all knew was that a piece of dust as small as a particle of cigarette smoke was enough to disrupt the cushion between the head and the disc, 
leading to what we all knew as a head crash. Head crashes lead to terrible, no good, very bad days, as I was about to find out. A head crash was the data center equivalent of a massive car pileup in the Indianapolis 500. At 20,000 RPMs, a momentary collision between head and disc was enough to destroy the device. Metal shavings would fly everywhere, crashing every head on every disc surface. In a matter of seconds, the mainframe would realize that it had suffered a digital aneurysm and it would come crashing down. And that's what happened on that morning in 1985. I was sitting in my office, doing paperwork, when I heard the click of the overhead speaker, which always preceded some kind of an announcement. And then the announcement came. This is mainframe operations. Elmos is down. No estimated time of restoral. All operations and network personnel to their positions, please. What I didn't know yet was that we had indeed lost a hard drive, without which the computer cannot run. I also didn't know that I would be in the data center for the next 24 hours, fielding calls, helping where I could. That was the job, like airplane pilots, hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of insanity, only in this case, the insanity lasted much longer than a moment. Every time a piece of data is written to a hard drive in a computer center, it's simultaneously written to magnetic tape as a backup. At least that's how we did it back then. This is done on the mainframe itself. When the machine signals that a reel of tape is full, a second tape starts to record. Human operators dismount the full reel of tape, remove what's called the right ring so that it can't be written over, that's the equivalent of that little sliding thing on your SD cards, label it, and then hang it in the tape library, a cavernous room filled with racks and racks of backup tapes. They then mount a fresh reel of tape on the computer. This happens all day long throughout the time that the machine is accessible to its online users. When a hard drive fails, as happened that morning, a new drive has to be spun up and put online, and then it has to be restored, meaning the data that it needs to have available to the mainframe, the data that was lost when the head crashed, has to be reloaded from dozens and dozens and dozens of reels of tape. This takes 12 to 15 hours or so, during which time the application or applications that ran on that machine are unavailable to the users. And we're not talking about Microsoft Word here. We're talking about billing applications, network monitoring and maintenance applications, repair tracking. In other words, the applications that allow the telephone company to provision, maintain, surveil, repair, and bill for its voice and data services. These outages affect tens of thousands of people, not to mention the potential impact on customers. For those of us in the data center, especially the managers, it meant hours and hours of extraordinary stress. Escalation calls came in by the dozens from increasingly higher and higher placed executives in the company wanting to know when their expletive deleted services would be back online and that they had dozens of people sitting on their butts doing nothing and that customers were out of service and didn't we know how critical these services were and that they'd have our asses in a sack if we didn't do something soon. It was the most high-stress, demeaning, soul-crushing time that I've ever experienced. We didn't eat. We didn't sleep. We were at the mercy of nerve-wrackingly slow hardware and software, hysterical, shrill calls from users who were convinced that we did this on purpose, threatening calls from executives, 
the sterile, fluorescent-lit, windowless, noisy world of the data center, and the other apocryphal fact that loomed over our heads. This outage costs the telephone company $75,000 for every minute that the system is down. It was horrible. After about 10 hours, my boss and I took a short break. We walked slowly downstairs and went outside. And that's when it hit us. The sun was shining. The sky was blue and filled with puffy white clouds. Birds all around us were chattering happily in the trees. Kids in the adjacent neighborhood were running around and laughing. Moms walked by on the sidewalk outside the heavily guarded security fence, pushing baby carriages and laughing. Dogs barked, and I could smell hamburgers and french fries cooking at the restaurant down the street. In other words, the stress and hysteria and pain and insanity that was going on inside the data center didn't extend beyond the data center. Life went on outside, and it was good. We went back inside, refreshed, renewed, knowing that this would pass. And of course, it did. And that's what I was thinking about as I walked through the field this morning. The coronavirus has changed pretty much everything. It's awful. But as I walked, I saw that the ice in the stormwater ponds had frozen into fantastic artistic swirls that looked like jewelry. Milkweed pods still clung to their stems, skeins of seed silk fluttering in the breeze. A tiny vole ran across the trail in front of me, his mouth full of grass, followed by another, and then a third. A choir of red-winged blackbirds called and trilled joyously from the wetland at the bottom of the field. Robins, members of the thrush family, sang their beautiful song all around me, as did goldfinches in their drab winter plumage. The frozen grass beneath my feet made satisfyingly crunching noises as I walked, and above me, the sky was blue and punctuated by white, puffy clouds. Dogs barked, and somewhere off in the distance, I heard kids laughing. Like my crashed computer, which seemed to last an eternity, this too will pass. Please don't let it overwhelm you or define you or cause you to forget that family and friends are still out there, that life is still out there, and that, isolated or not, we all still need connection. Pick up the phone and call somebody you haven't spoken to in a while. Take a walk. Listen to the birds. Bundle up. Sit on the porch. Read a book. Wave at your neighbors. The new normal doesn't have to be bad. It's just different. But let's make it as good different as we can. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.